Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Everybody, welcome to the What Culture Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Taylor, joined by Benjamin Richardson. Hello. I'm Josh Brown. Hello. Do you guys like old games? Yes. Yes, I love them. Me too. I got an N64, <laughs> and, I, and then Benji was talking about things that he plays from 20 years ago, because I can't get him to talk about anything else. And we thought we might as well just bring together a whole bunch of old school games that have aged the best. Um, now, this is just obviously a massive conversation. We've only picked three apiece each, um, because there are so many gems or whatever. Um, so I'm going to kick things off with The Adventures of Batman and Robin on the SNES, Ooh. which I hope you've both played. No, because I... I was preparing for you to say, make sure it's not on there. Spider Man one. On I the was initially. One. I initially had that, and then I started going back through like my old childhood favorites and things that I've made posts about and whatever on social media. And then I was like, no, I need. I want to talk about this because I haven't mentioned this. Yeah. Um, but I have. I've got it on my Mac as a, um, an emulated version and have it on the original SNES. Um, I have not played this, so tell me more. It's, Why it's, is it's it so amazing. Benji, have you played it? I have not played it. Okay, so the, yeah, this is the yeah the Adventures of Batman and Robin. It's just it's essentially just based on the cartoon um, with that old school like Batman animated series '90s style art style um it's a fighting game 2d side scrolling thing um i just love it i mean i lo- i loved it a lot playing it when i was younger um not on the snes but i sort of dipped in a little bit friends had it and whatever and then i eventually got it back on the emulated version but it just it if you love the batman animated series it's got all the charm in the character and the character designs themselves um from that and so it would be you can just pick it up today and it's it's incredibly responsive a lot of those old games are it's one of the i don't know if it's like a other than the whole thing where two people don't match on the same lane when you fight games <laughs> like streets of rage and you kind of stop missing punches I find this to be a little bit more responsive in that regard. Um, I think if you just have a base love of Batman, it's brilliant. Is it better than Batman Forever? Ooh, um, ooh. I used to love that as a kid. That's the one that has the, the Batmobile race, isn't it? Maybe. One of the one of the movie games also back then had the Mode 7 graphics where it was the first time they'd used a, they did like a 3D race level. Was that Batman? Oh, yes, it might be. Maybe. <laughs> I don't think it was Batman and Robin. It looked like OutRun. It was that whole, like the way that nearly all games did driving levels back in like 1995 or whatever it was, when it's just like one tunnel vision uh, level. But the, one of the Batman games totally had okay. that. Batman and Robin, uh, Adventures Batman and Robin doesn't have that. Um, but it does have, yeah, like just the general art style of the cartoon and it feels like you're playing the cartoon, which if you were ever a fan of, of BTAS, it's totally the best thing. So yes. I was just going to say a big question there is if you haven't played it mm. and obviously you weren't alive at that time, would you still enjoy it? 
That's what I'm saying. I, I think it totally. Sweet. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's nice and responsive. I think that um, just just in terms of just general, you know, how iconic Batman is or whatever. You're playing one of the best versions of that character, um, and just over the top things like um, like Joker's Funhouse is one of the earliest levels, and the level design is just really inventive. Just visually, it's just lush. I just love it. I think it's the best um, tie-in like game that they ever did for the animated series. So yes, would be that my answer to that thing. Benji, what was your first game? Um, it's a really obvious pick. It's Super Mario 64. Shout, I which, finally played this gem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been banging on about this to you for the last... 30 years? Yeah, it feels like it. And 20 years? I don't know, I've really struggled to convince you. Like, every plea such as, it's one of the most important games of all time. <laughs> it's not aged a day. It's still well, just as playable now as ever. It's one of the best games of all time, but none of that's... Your gambit, <laughs> but your gambit was, you need, I need to get an N64 because yeah, you because, hate the DS. Because I strongly dissuaded you from playing the DS simply mm. because of a great thing about Mario 64 and the thing that's aged best are the absolutely perfect controls which on the DS was changed so you use the touchscreen mm. you actually got a really strange little nub little rubber nub that you put on the screen and you had to sort of a nub. manipulate very awkwardly and unintuitively okay. which is completely anathema to the whole point of Mario 64 which was designed around this beautiful new piece of hardware the analog stick I mean we're clearly going to clash at how beautiful the N64 yeah. controller <laughs> is but carry on I'll just jump in and quickly say that <laughs> Nintendo's analog stick wasn't actually the first analog stick in mm. games. I believe that was Sega's for the Knights controller. Okay. But it was the best and it was the first that was the de facto standard. Mm. And the way that they fine-tuned it was with Mario 64. Mm. And as a consequence, he's incredibly responsive in every direction, mm. more so than any character I'd been before and arguably more than a lot since. Mm. I was going to say, because I've only had an N64 for about 24 hours when we record this, yes. but I, Mario 64 was the game I got with it. Um, and like, yeah, Mario has this really weird sense of he leans into turns. He's got a lot of weight to him, yeah, he's which got, I, I really love. He's got an unusual turn in circle. Mm -hmm. And like, if you press backwards, he doesn't immediately like flip around. Yeah. He actually has a turn. Yeah, unless you let off the stick and then tap it again, you can kind of fall. There's little like little that, intricacies to yeah, it. Yeah, that was so unexpected the first time I played. I didn't like, you expect it to be perhaps, oh, it's not that it's not sort of intuitive or anything, mm. but you just expect it, or at least I did expect it to be more arcadey or but you have to, simpler. Mm. You have to keep in mind, this was the first game to oh, yeah. even explore with this concept of 3D space mm. in this way. And it was before all the standards have been set much later, like what we expect, mm. which is why it's a little different and why it's maybe not as, it's not what people expect, but it certainly works. And, yeah. and the thing you just mentioned there allows him much more fluidly leaning into his other moves, like his somersault and his mm. backflip and his wall jump. And it's it's not just a technical demo either. Um, I think the camera is maybe... A little bit dated, oh, yeah. but that's down of the <laughs> limitations of control more uh -huh. than anything. However, in terms of level design and the objectives and the structure, it, it also really brought that forward as well. Mm -hmm. And you really get the sense, it's not like just going back, you, what it also says, it's impossible to play it for five minutes. You can't think, I'll get the first few steps. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. have to get all of them if you ever go back to it. It's just as mesmeric in 2019 as it was One in thing that's really weird is um, like having played a, a whole bunch of Mario since 64. I did play 64 when I was a kid, but it was literally because it was in a random shopping center. It was set up somewhere. I did a couple of levels. That was it. Um, never touched it until like the other day. Um, but having played like lots of uh, Mario sequels, I, I realized how similar or how much they take from 64. Like that sense of weight and momentum kind of carries through for Mario, but even down to the little melody that it makes when you get one of the, you get a moon in Odyssey, but it's a star in 64. Well, Odyssey, like Odyssey is its closest 
yeah. uh, companion. Which I think it's they were trying to redo. Effectively this Mario 64 2. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. But um, I want like a very quickly little kind of thing to throw in is that like, I don't know if you guys feel this when you go back to old games like this, especially old platformers, but um, they really have like a, a different way of making you appreciate 3D space um, because obviously they were, it was groundbreaking at the time. They wanted to showcase, look at these 3D environments, but something like Breath of the Wild tapped back into that as well, where you can climb anywhere and you can retake in this whole level kind of thing. Um, and it, 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 going... it offers so much more versatility to how mm. you can approach the objectives. Mm-hmm. It also hides its secret well. If you play a modern 3D platform like Ratchet and Clank or even Sp- Spyro not long after, right. they are essentially on rails mm. and you don't Kinda. really have freedom. You, you're, it's an afraid space, mm-hmm. but you don't really have a lot of options in how you can approach right. the different objectives. Mm-hmm. Whereas Mario 64 made you consider what Mario's moves were, which you had from the entire beginning, mm-hmm. and then said, right, how do you apply these to this this space we've made? Mm-hmm. You can do it in any way you like, and everywhere is just as valid. Well, that's the kind of the breath of the like, wild like thing. You yeah. say, but it, but that, it stops you thinking about what you can do and more where you are. Yeah. You think about the environment. There's something about like that little acrobatic stuff as well, where he is just doing little like side flips and triple jumps and whatever else. And like just that, like I said, it, it just makes you play, like you play in a 3D space. Yeah. And like, so that's what kind of one, made it One thing I do as anyway. well is, you know, when, when you complete an objective and the star appears. Yes. I cannot bring myself just to jump into it. I have to do a backflip. <laughs> well, there is that. And plus, when you go it. in the star, it takes you back out of the level, which, like, that's one little design flaw it's, because you want to do other stuff and it's like, oh, yeah, no, you're back to the star it's, again. It's a flaw in the sense, but it's actually, it's a practical thing. It's it's because Nintendo wanted... Sorry, Josh, I'll let no, you talk. No, no. <laughs> no, it's just the... the, we, the were, <laughs> we were questioning whether, where this is going. I don't think this well, is... I, I've got gonna, a counterpoint I'm, to your I'm going to bring up another game which actually does this things differently, mm-hmm. but it's very similar, but mm-hmm. I'll conscious of it but the reason why they did that is because they wanted the levels to be to change right. but there was no way of doing it adaptably on the fly the only, the only thing is there's one bit at the very beginning it's in that babom valley or something and it's like they you get on top of this little floating clump and it's like oh here's the star you got on top of here well done here's your star and then they also go they also tell you wait just a bit they always tell tell you that there's all these coins that you can grab and then if then you go to get the coins but the star's right there and you get yeah. the star I'll get the star first then I'll get the coin no whoa, whoa. back out the level you can't do you're it. talking about the red in. coins here yes so oh no no the gold ones in in the case of that well bit. there's two things one you actually can get some stars out of order which is very right. satisfying it makes it feel like you've chosen to go against what you've been told. Mm. Mm-hmm. And secondly, uh, if you collect the 100 gold coins, it actually doesn't kick you out the level. Okay. But I actually find those challenges the most fun because it really is a test of everything. All it's I like, want to do is I want to grab a star and then I want to get in a going. cannon yep. and fire through some <laughs> of the gold coins and I can't do it. What was you the thing you were going to say? Oh, it's just the thing about 3D space and mm. that. I think when I was playing Super Mario Odyssey because I'd been kind of, um, I'd become accustomed to games having one or two or maybe three ways of getting through a level mm. and then that's it. With Mario Odyssey, I was so surprised to finish that game using really basic moves and then going online and watching people who have played Mario for such well, a long time it's do in, it. It's interesting. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah, else, it's yeah. interesting you mentioned because in the Mario 64 community, one of the big challenges is can you complete the game without jumping? Mm. Using just How the big button. <laughs> just, just for two reasons. One is an additional challenge to get more out of the game and two is a proof of just what a great game this is and how much freedom it gives you. Mm. But it can actually be achieved. Right. Not, it's not very enjoyable, but mm. it can be done. It can be done. Josh, <laughs> uh, what was your uh, game that has not aged? Well, it's one I've just finished this past week, actually. It's, it's Metal Gear thing. Solid 1. Good. It's the first time I've played it since I was a wee wee Ben. I played really? the others tens, if not hundreds of times in the case of number two. Mm-hmm. But this was the first time I'd probably gone back to it and played it, which is a key distinction, I think, because Metal Gear Solid 1 is often remembered for its innovations in cinematic storytelling, mm-hmm. and that totally holds up. But I was wondering whether the gameplay does... And it kind of does. It has a lot of problems that early 3D action games do, especially on the PlayStation 1, where mm-hmm. the controls are very 
finicky and you have to wrestle with them a lot of the time, especially when you're fighting behind and you have to rappel down right, the side yeah. of the, um, the building. That took me ages. <laughs> but it had something really interesting that we briefly touched upon in the last podcast, and that's its structure and its pacing, whereas... Mm. You, there's no real gameplay loop to it, although it is a stealth game. There are only like a handful of times you're sneaking around guards in a kind of freeform way. Everything else is sort of very structured to always give you something new, whether it's a boss battle mm. or an interlude between like major segments or something where you have to like backtrack and collect key cards, which I absolutely hate, by the way. That's it the only a, bad bit, yeah. There's a lot of problems, but no game is perfect. And I think going back to older games and seeing how dated they can be, this is a revelation in a lot of ways. Yeah. Just the fact that you always have something new to do and it's so, so tight a lot of the the games beyond uh, the first metal gear solid i think become a bit indulgent and a bit winding and a bit <laughs> too focused on taking the control away from player mm-hmm. of the player whereas this strikes a nice balance between that cinematic storytelling and making you feel in control mm. well i keep mentioning to you guys like you need to check out the um, the polygon article between with the the translator like the one person translator team because that's the whole thing the stuff that we fell in love with for the first metal gear it's very much that one dude it was a one guy translation team um which just kind of blows my mind i think that considering the kojima's apparent reaction to that was like oh my god you changed so much stuff even things like the codec came from that guy it wasn't something that was in the script um but like well the, i guess the utilization of it was in yeah. the script the name wasn't in there um and so kojima was like i'm having the final word on everything yeah, going forward which why they went way it's more su- off the rails. It's surprising to me that Kojima forward. doesn't recognise that the strongest thing about Metal Gear Solid isn't actually the story. Ooh. It's the gameplay. Ooh, I Benji with the takes. What, I, what do you mean? I just think I think the story is the one thing that's aged the most poorly Ooh. between the first time I played it and if I play it now, I, I have no interest in all Can I tell you gibberish. about a hot coldman? And how he fits into the lore. <laughs> it was interesting going back to the story because I think there's a, there's a tightness to that first game that lets it stand alone, but then it also kind of... Yeah, it has a lot of weird stuff about, you know, obviously the theme of it is genes and, you know, kind of like beating fate and beating um, like your fathers and like what's mm. what your heritage is sort of already, you know, it's well, fate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and, and as we know, it, it's almost become the trademark of Metal Gear Solid is that it's chock-a-block of preposterous things that it treats completely earnestly. That's why I love it. I think it works really well in this game. This, I think it works more potentially as a survival horror game than it is an action game. When you're in Shadow Moses, especially when you're in like the, with the wolves and the yeah. radar, the Great Fox Corridor. Yeah, the Great Fox yeah. Corridor. You've got like all these ambient sounds, and the score is really steeped in atmosphere and horror. And mm-hmm. it works as a not an action game, but this kind of weird horror esque thing where everything is just unnatural enough to put you off. Like mm-hmm. it does treat it with earnestness, earnestness. But I think that's to its strength because then it does unnerve you when these preposterous things happen. What I will, yeah. what I will say is I, 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 I do actually agree with that completely because the first time I played Metal Gear Solid, it was the most tense I'd, I'd ever felt playing a game. Like I really <laughs> felt my heart rate go up mm, through right. the sense of like being enclosed and being mm. surrounded. And as you mentioned, some of the set pieces as well do give us a, a real palpable sense of bread. I know, like stuff yeah. like the Nikita corridor when you have to try and guide the missile like down this poisonous gas thing to un- to whatever to free up that place to go and then straight after that you have the thing with Grey Fox and all the bodies and oh my god what did this and whatever and like all the different um, the whispers in the distance all that the weird little like sound effects and at the end when you finally come face to face with Metal Gear X and it's yeah. this massive towering thing uh, yeah there is like a weird element of horror that never really gets talked about in that game no there's so much variety to it even when you're just walking through the snowy fields from one part of the complex to another and you might get taken by 
surprise, surprise by a minor something like yes. that. Or you can hear again the wolves in the distance, or even Snake's breath. Considering other games at the time mm-hmm. wouldn't have those little details in, it just maximizes the dread. Even mechanics that are never used after the first level or so, like people guards being able to follow your footsteps via mm. water and stuff like that's barely ever used in the actual game but it catches you off guard right at the beginning yeah. so you're thinking about it all the way Plus, through which I love if you're on low health and you hit a mine the take that David Hayter did when you die where he goes yeah <laughs> like just, just just losing his mind in the booth at the time. Um, yeah, that thing's just like seared into my brain. Um, so the next game down that I've got is Def Jam Fight for New York, which my picks might be stuff that you guys haven't played, which I can just tell you about it. Tell me about this. Any of the Def Jam games? Surprisingly, I have not. I thought you would have done because you like the wrestling. We uh, did anyway. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'm the wrestling. Little bit. I'm the wrestling editors on this very. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, there was like there was Def Jam Vendetta, which was like Aki Core, who was like the uh, known wrestling. I'm devs. not a huge fan of the Def Jam conglomerate. And you've missed out. Really I, in good. fact, I don't have an opinion. I don't. I don't. I'm not familiar with the music. Okay. So yeah. Well, that's the thing. So they, they, the Def Jam label, they took all the different um, rappers and whatever, and then just just what if their personas, what if their rapper personas, the overblown personas, were real? What if they were wrestlers or whatever? And then invented a couple of people. There's this guy called D Mob, who's like the uh, the head of the whole thing. That was in Def Jam Vendetta, which was more like a wrestling game. It was Aki Core, which are the devs of I think WCW Mayhem and a whole bunch. Uh, of... They did the two WCW games on the N64. Yes. World Tour and. Revenge and I, revenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like you had like this kind of wrestling dev doing like just a bit another wrestling game, but with these overblown personas. It was fine. I, I liked it a lot. But Fight for New York was when they they made it way more like a brawler, and all of a sudden they brought in loads of environmental stuff where you could pick someone up and slam them off a wall, and then slam them back down and hoil them up in the air, and then jump up and do a drop kick or whatever. Um, not in like a Devil May Cry type sense. Everything was still very canned animations, but it was all by EA and the um, the production for it, the sense of weight and momentum to all those characters. Like when you do a body slam, like a suplex or whatever, um, you really feel it in a way that I genuinely think no other games ever come close to like and they had matches in there called I think it was called like a Hummer match where um, each because um, we only got one on one for this match um, each person has a, a just a, a Hummer like a you know a fully formed vehicle and if you can destroy the Hummer by slamming someone into it enough then you win the match that's good it's just great and uh, and so yeah you were just like starting people's faces off windows and slamming them into different parts of car parks and whatever else and no other games ever come close to that I'm really upset I've never played this it's wrestling oh. games of, you know, it doesn't matter whether they were WWE based or backyard wrestling. Yeah. I used to buy and play them all and I'm really annoyed I might have missed the best one. Well, I I would say that this, because I said it, that Vendetta is the one that's more like a wrestling game. This is more like a brawler. Ah. Um, you still have wrestling moves in mm. it. Like, you know, there's still over the top stuff and everything. It was back when the EA this Big Little was sounds very similar to Power Stone. Maybe. If you ever played Power Stone on the Dreamcast. Okay. Which is like an open arena brawler of the same can way. I you can kick up... someone in front of a train on it? Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe in the second one, but you can Get pick it. up pieces of furniture and throw them at it. And okay. It's like... They had, it they sounds like, almost exactly the same. They had the some uh, environment, like, stuff that you could throw, like bottles and stuff. They also had like the brawls that would take place in bars would be surrounded by like a crowd of people. So if you punch someone into the crowd, they would hold them. You could do like a tag team move with the crowd. That's cool. It just it never gets its due as one of the best fighting games of all time, and it clearly is. It was so polished. Um, and it, I think the problem is that after this, uh, Def Jam Icon was the third one, um, which is clearly when EA was like, okay, we need to overhaul it, and they made a game where you dance to win, and it was just you were still fighting, um, but the whole background would like pulse with the music which is a good idea um, but the whole the whole way that you did finishes was to like do moves and then slam your foot down like how Vin Diesel beats the dude at the end of Fast Five or whatever it is I'm hearing nothing bad about this concept I know right it sounds good and then I bought I, it and it was horrible so I, I have a theory on the on the Def Jam uh, Vendetta go on uh, just I mentioned Power Stone a few moments ago at around about the same time in the lo- in the build of the Dreamcast launch there was a, an AM2 game being advertised called Spike Okay. Right. So basically, it was like almost exactly as you're describing, but like a real world 
beat them up where you like hit, hit, like hit people in shopping malls and up escalators <laughs> and cafes and right. things like that. And it looked incredible. Uh-huh. And then ultimately it was cancelled. Right. Now I was I was extremely interested in that game. I really wanted to play it. Mm-hmm. When Def Jam Vendetta came around, absolutely nothing on my radar whatsoever. Mm. But, and I think it's based on the license. I think because I wasn't interested in Def Jam, I just thought, nah, not for me. There's, there's something about, I don't know if you guys remember uh, a game on the PS2 called The Bouncer. It was back yeah. when the PS2 came oh, out. No. So this was a Squares attempt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. like the first trailer they ever did for that showed that it was just a, but it was like, you know, your standard JRPG character designs, but in more like a Western setting. And they were just like, it was like pretty much the, the subway scene from the first Matrix, but with four dudes fighting a bunch of randoms, um, doing like giant 360 camera motions in midair and catching things and kicking people in and doing these different things. But then you go to the game itself and it kind of was like that but with without any of the style there was no 360 spins there was nothing at all that matrix influence was clearly just for the trailer but def jam fight for new york has all that impact all that sort of just have fun with all these moves that you have all these different interactions that you can do i love it josh i'm mate. totally sold me it's really, really good really so that'll be mine um yes benji what is your second game um I might change this on the fly because it's very similar to the first one. Do my God. It's I know. Of... You have no respect for the rules, Benji. <laughs> I'm a rebel. With, with he submitted four games to a, to a three request, but carry <laughs> on. I can't. I also can't count. Um... The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. I'm going to say Banjo-Kazooie. Good. Which is another game that you picked up with your own I've got it. I haven't played yeah. it. Yet. So yeah. in 1998, it was a great bit. Which is better, Mario 64 or Banjo-Kazooie mm. for me? I like them both. <laughs> now wrong with that. And every time I play... Well, you I, had to pick one. Right here, right now, you have well, I've four picked, seconds. Well, I've, I've picked them both. As far as <laughs> you can't. You've got to pick one. <laughs> well, I've said Mario's because you've got So <laughs> just, just in order of precedence. But mm-hmm. Banjo-Kazooie, every time I go back to it, I'm absolutely perplexed how smooth and entertaining and original it is. Right. The day, it doesn't... The camera's better than Mario 64's marginally. Mm. It runs a bit quicker. It's ironed out some of the flaws. Um, it's got so much invention, it just keeps you going throughout the whole game. But mm-hmm. because it's so similar to Mario 64, it's difficult for me to really add anything more on that. I think that's why it kind of got, I wouldn't say buried, but it, it tends to get overlooked when people I look back on the N64. I don't necessarily think it does. I think it's got yeah. a very, very committed fandom. I don't know if you saw the reaction to Banjo and Kazooie. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, just, I mean, it's, it's not up there with Mario 64, even though it, people Be- do Simply do because, I think because it was considered a clone. But I actually right. think it bettered mm-hmm. right. a lot of, Mario 64's flaws, like it doesn't kick you out for levels, you, it's for all completely open-ended, mm. which I, when I spoke about Mario Odyssey, we s- describe it as Mario 64 too. I actually think it's cl- much closer and more sim- similar to Banjo-Kazooie than it is ah. Mario 64, as you will discover. Okay. With the trans- transformations <laughs> and things like that. Uh-huh. And also it's like littered with rares, ageless humour. I know right. a lot of people don't like the silly voices, but... Silly <laughs> yeah. voices is good. Have you heard the... Have you heard yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like, I, like, I, like, I like to imagine rare... I don't know who was doing at the time... Mr. Rare. 
Ian Rare was yeah. Reginald uh, Ayr. Yes, I believe so. David Wise or Grant Kirk, I was one, one of the sound engineers there. Mm-hmm. And they all came and said, right, today, one of the stamps all came to, to them and said, today, I want you to imagine if a bucket could talk, what noise would it make? <laughs> right. And then repeat that over and over again. And then the next good. day, it's, it's uh, you know, like a, it's a palm tree today. Oh, brilliant. So, <laughs> I mean, it's a good way to go. Anything by Grant, uh, Grant Kirk Hope is some of the best music well, he in contribu- history. He well, he contributed to the soundtrack of uh, Ukulele for Spiritual Successor, yes. which mm. fell a bit flat because it tried to ape. That's a good record. A? Yeah, it tried to ape Banjo Kazooie a little bit too closely. Mm-hmm. And I'm really, really excited to see what they come up with with the um, sequel, mm-hmm. which is going to be more Donkey Kong Country style. Right, okay. That sounds pretty good. Josh, what was your second game? We're gradually running out of time. Are we? Right, I'll, I'll... Well, I don't, know, I don't know what time we started. I think we've been going for about 15, who, 20 minutes. It'll knows? be fine. But... My next pick is yeah. Resident Evil 1. And I know what you're Ooh. thinking. Josh. The original? Josh, Josh, Josh. Josh <laughs> the original one. I know what you're thinking, man. You look, you look at me like that <laughs> and you say, Josh, the tank controls, the voice acting, the, look the of graphics, it. just the sheer look of it. How is that not completely dated? I do love it, but yeah. And that's because it's all part of the charm. It was back then, it yeah. is now. The tank controls are an integral part of that game's flow and that yeah. game's combat and that game's structure and that game's mechanical loop. And the um, the, the voice acting was never good, but it adds to that <laughs> B-movie aesthetic that right. it just thrives in. It is a scary game. It has jump scares. But it's not just the voice acting that evokes that kind of like quirky kitsch aesthetic. It's the sheer look of the mansion with its blank walls and it's oddly coloured like flaws and stuff it's just it's lack weird, of textures it's a weird it's lack of textures which works in its favour it totally but works yeah I think even though the remake whatever version you get is is is, is a better game because it, it uh, does clean up a lot of its like mistakes mm-hmm. I think if you just go back to play Resident Evil 1 you can still have a banging time and right. I did earlier this year mm-hmm. see the thing about the remake is that it retained the tank controls yeah and it retained a lot of the things that gave that game its personality I need I need we need I need to do a whole separate pod or an editorial or something on the importance of tank controls yeah because I totally get why they went by you know went by the wayside but there's something about not weirdly this will be a broken phrase but there's something about not being able to effectively control your protagonist in the situation when you need to effectively control your protagonist that makes horror games really click. Well, that's yep. it. I think that kind of mentality... Because you can't the, escape. Yeah, it's been the bread and butter of especially those old survival horror games. And it's not just um, titles with tank controls either. Silent Hill 2, mm. your, like, your, is he called James? I James forgot. Sutherland. James Sutherland controls poorly even right. though you've got a fully like functional like 3D camera in that game in some parts. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, you still have the same trouble, you know, locking onto enemies, hitting enemies. In a, Even in a game like Evil Within 2, your guy, at least at the start, can't aim for anything. You can't aim for Toffee. Uh, you are purposefully underpowered in that way by making you feel a bit powerless in mm-hmm. a situation. I think the tank controls add so much of that horror element to the original game. And just like the the basic kind of the way you interact with the mansion and the and, and the zombies themselves, you need to really learn the layout. You need mm-hmm. to know where things are. The I'm a sucker for inventory management. Okay. I don't know if any game has done it better than Resident Evil 1, because <laughs> especially when you're playing as Chris, you only get a handful of slots. and You, you prefer the limited stuff. I prefer the limited stuff, right. because then you can't, even if you have a lot of ammo, because sometimes you can break Resident Evil 1 because it's slightly easy, you can get a lot of ammo, but because you've got limited slots, hmm. that is meaningless, because you'll have to keep most of it in your item box anyway, so mm-hmm. you can only take maybe one magazine full, and then you have to leave space for the other items, if you want to do it efficiently, not have to keep backtracking. Mm-hmm. And it rewards you not only for learning the layout of the level, learning where you have to go, learning when's best to use your ammunition, but even what items you should take for certain runs, so you don't have to keep running back, so yep. you can do things efficiently. And it's kind of... 
I'm not going to say it's the same as Mario 64, Benji, but it encourages <laughs> that kind of mentality. It kind of, of is in its own little way. You can play it in yeah, the most simplistic form, the, uh -huh. but you get the, more out the, of it. The, the key unifying factor between these two games is that they both ask you to think. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They ask you to step back and actually plan what you're going to do in the game, uh -huh. rather than just going through it like down a tunnel, mm -hmm. which is what a lot of modern games do do, and it doesn't mean they're necessarily bad, but it you do feel like you're on rails. It's just that thing that the industry's obviously like sort of perfected or, or explored over the years of just tailoring the experience, like making sure that anyone who buys the certain thing gets to see whatever well, the highlights are. So you were talking about the um, the shooting in Silent Hill there. I was thinking back to the original Deus Ex because it's an RPG. Mm. It starts with um, J.C. Denton is shooting is all over the place. It, but people, would, if they approach that now, they're expecting it to play like an FPS. Right. And thinking, yeah. why does it never hit? Oh, the controls are bad. Well, they're not bad. It's actually the structure of the game to get better at it. The nearest thing to that as a modern example would be that Kingdom Come Deliverance. Like, But you're, yeah. you're meant to be this uh, this guy called, I think he's called Harry or Henry. Um, getting th you're supposed to be trying to avenge your family, but you've never fired a bow before. So like, you're, it's literally, they take that to the nth degree where you, you're, you're flailing around with a sword and you, you miss all the arrows. And like, always... progression's really good once you finally get it I was going to say, that was also a big criticism of Shadow of the Colossus, how right. unwieldy wonder was even mm -hmm. though that was the whole point it's not like he's coming in as, as a traditional hero he's just a kid yeah he was trying to save i don't know the Princess. relationship between them but uk yeah i forget her name mono anyway carry on. i don't know i was gonna say yeah like in for me in games like this even evil within two when you do have obviously it's a modern game so you have an upgrade tree you have leveling up you can put points into you know sorting your accuracy out mm -hmm. even when i was playing it in 10 hours 15 hours in i didn't want to right because it would have potentially robbed something from the scares in the moment I if i could accurately <laughs> just pop people's heads off i didn't want to do it eventually yes. i had to because i had nothing else to buy but it's, i was it's, it's purposely much, handicapping myself yeah, yeah. it's much better if the game designs it so the player themselves levels up Mm. And, yeah, and, yeah, and grows really. better at it, so you actually feel the rather than just plugging a lot of arbitrary points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, oh great, I can shoot in the first. Time. So you would like to play a game with like really like loose accuracy, a really restricted inventory, only when a sense of reward at the end of it. Only when it's survival horror. I wouldn't okay. play if there was Gears of War and it was controlled like that. I would have a big problem with it, but because it's the Evil Five Within bullets. Two uh, in Resident Evil Two, for instance, as well, like mm -hmm. that unwieldiness when it comes to shooting just adds so much to the in the moment mm. horror for me. That my last thing, um, I had Final Fantasy VII down, but Benji, you were going to have nine, so I ended up just saying the original 3D trilogy on PS1, um, which I can just kind of fire through pretty quickly. Jojo, yet to play them. I, I, I thought I was going to be a good fit for this podcast. And you then are? I come on, and I realized I've played absolutely nothing. <laughs> That's because that I can tell you about it. Yes. Um, Benji, we, we've played all the Final Fantasies. We have, yeah. It's a very good time. Uh, I, so I put seven down. I've actually recently went back through seven because of all the remake stuff. I was like, oh my God, I love this franchise. I'll go back to Final Fantasy VII and play it all the way through, like probably all the way through, because I've restarted it like endless times but I haven't seen the back third of it until like the other week um, the back third of that game is a complete mess um, because the translation team again was one person um, but you don't think of that when you're a kid it just it just all lands beautifully and because the opening of the game is way stronger it, it's, it, you know, it, it sits together I still think that um, it's totally worth picking up I think the characters are amazing I think the world and the themes like there's so many environmentalist I, themes that are really great too so what we're talking about here is how well have games aged and can you still play them today and yes. I think Final Fantasy 7 of those three people will pick up who've never had any experience of it, even a JRPG, for mm -hmm. example. I think, what on earth is the fuss about? Yeah. Like, I why? think you would still get it. I think you could get into it, but mm -hmm. I think it's a much 
I think you're going to have a, a, a much higher drop-off rate of people who just give up on it. Probably. My whole thing, if you are about like, yeah, because like, obviously the, the whole point is stuff that you can still revisit today. My point was going to be that I think it, it's still open. I think the vast majority is still so recommendable. I still, because I played through with my wife and she hadn't even seen it before. And she still fell in love with the characters and the plot and the and all the environmentalist themes and Sephiroth being a complete G and everything mm. else. And so I think there's still enough there that you can still love. I think you can still play it and appreciate why it was a big deal at the time. Um, but the reason that I'm throwing in Final Fantasy VIII and Nine is that they only refined it going forward, um, especially in terms of storytelling because once 7 blew up Square were like oh my god we do need an actual translation team and so 8 and 9 actually make sense Until with you, 9 having one of the best endings I was gonna in the whole the series. localization in 9 is fantastic as yeah, well yeah. like it's so personalized mm. and it, it feels feel like real people <laughs> yeah I mean like I think I would probably if you're gonna because I, I would totally recommend that original trilogy they're so long like each one's like 40-50 hours but I'd still recommend them um, but if you're gonna grab one it probably is 9 that's um, what I've heard yeah. like I the don't know anything about 9 well, but people well, like you guys the interesting mm-hmm. thing about What's 9 right? is that it was originally designed as a sort of a guide and a side game mm, Final right. Fantasy like which would incorporate a lot of historical uh, like traditional elements of the series in one big celebration mm. because Seven and eight and, and six as well. It sort of moved away from the old high fantasy setting mm-hmm. to a more steampunk and cyberpunk setting. Seven is really steampunk yeah. and cyberpunky. I love it. Uh, so with nine, they want to do something like that was the permanence of Final Fantasy. But because they made so much of it and mm-hmm. it was so big, they thought, oh, let's just call it Final Fantasy nine. <laughs> but as a consequence, it means it's a really great <coughs> over- overview of the entire series as well because mm-hmm. it's full of references and all, all the hallmarks of Final Fantasy, which is pretty much all the series has now. Mm-hmm. But in addition to the fantastic gameplay of seven and eight, plus it's worth mentioning for eight, like because for the longest time there was a whole thing which is fascinating, where like Square Enix had misplaced the actual code for Final Fantasy VIII, so they had to go and get it back from someone they licensed it to once to bring it back or whatever. That was why eight was missing from a whole bunch of the um, the combination packages, the collections that came out the last few years. Um, eight, they finally recovered the code and they're putting it back out now. Um, but eight though, like a lot of people overlook that because it's you kind of play it's like a uni- it's like a Harry Potter style university for soldiers, um, and you just open playing a squall who's like just done a training. I, it, you love it man and, um, I mean <laughs> it's really good and you have this whole thing where you're playing as this dude called Squall who's been doing some training he's been cut in the face and he's like waking up and they're just like look when you're training you need to watch out what you do and you know someone might be able to cut your face off and you sort of just go forward from there and you, you know you train to become a soldier and you just hang out in the dorms and you've got tests and you got it feels teachers so, and everything it feels so intimate that stuff I, I love, I love the, I, yeah I, I wasn't necessarily the most popular person at high school so I wasn't involved in all the social... Screaming about Mario 64. <laughs> I wasn't unpopular, but I was just kept myself to myself. I was very quiet. <laughs> but, so I wasn't involved in all, all like social aspects of it. So getting to replay that in games, I was really appealed to mm. me, as sad mm-hmm. as it is. And Final I, Fantasy VIII I, captured that at that time. Personally. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, yeah, Final Fantasy VIII and Bully were like two games that I played when I was either in high school or in university or whatever. And it was there is still that... There is something about games set in high schools when they're done well, where you do... Everyone has those memories of what it's like being in there. And it's like, Persona, well, what, 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 what would it be The Persona series does it really well. Yeah, Persona's great for it. I think... I just yes. say the problem with Final Fantasy VIII was that it wasn't Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> well, Especially yeah, in yeah. this country when the previous six Final Fantasies hadn't been released, so people didn't know that they didn't follow on from one another. Plus it didn't help that they'd numbered them wrong. Yeah. yeah. But not to worry. Benji, what was your third game, please? Um, a really odd pick, because mm-hmm. most people would say it's aged it's horrendously. It's not Banjo-Tooie, which <laughs> is okay, but not brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's the original Tomb Raider. Oh, ah, see, this is a great one for the 3D space thing. Yeah, and, and it's it's actually gone back on itself. So maybe if you played it 10 years ago, you'd think, God, I can't be doing with this, given what games are like now. But if, mm-hmm. you, if you play it in 2019, as I just recently did, I picked it up in the Steam sale, mm-hmm. you really, really grow to appreciate how little it holds your hand in its level design. What it asks you to do is you, you emerge into an area and it wants you to look everywhere, take everything in, piece those parts of jigsaw in your mind together, mm-hmm. 
and then plot your own route through it. Mm-hmm. Now, the controls, people say it's ridiculous. It's so fin- finicky. You have to like jump back a step and then run forward. I think that level of accuracy makes it better right. because mm-hmm. you really, really plan very intricately what you're going to do. And it always works. Mm-hmm. It never fails. Oh, I don't know. I was going to say it's really finicky. I don't know what never fails. <laughs> Everyone's fell down those chasms like a million times. Well, you, yeah, but you don't if you do it properly. Mm. I mean, th- th- either way, and, I was going to say... And also realistically, okay, so you've played the modern Tomb Raiders where she, where it's basically just uncharted with a ponytail. And she's <laughs> legging it through these environments mm-hmm. and you're not stopping to think. You wouldn't. You probably wouldn't do that in those scenarios. You die nine times out of ten. And, and a lot of these Realism. games you actually do and it just puts you back in. So what? No consequence. Mm-hmm. In this... You would take your time. You would be careful. Mm-hmm. You would look around. You would think before you just leap. And then when you're absolutely sure, you take your step back. And then there's a sense yeah, of yeah, yeah. the breathtaking drama and you grab on the edge and it's like, great, I've made it. Yeah, I've solved it. One thing that I think, camera panning up. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, that, that idea of like verticality, like loads of games do like, explorable environments. Nothing's done like peril when, you, when, you're, when you're on the edge of this massive thing. You've just yeah. spent 20 minutes climbing at the top I of it. I don't necessarily agree with blind leaps of faith. Right. But I, I do think modern level design is too good to the point where as well, mm. if you play it, I know it sounds ridiculous to describe it as too good, but if you play a lot of games, eventually you become so good at reading the language of levels. Yes. You know what to do immediately. Especially yeah. in games like Tomb Raider and yeah. Uncharted. So, so you don't yeah. even have to think. And yeah, it can be fun. It can be quite exhilarating, but you don't get the same sense of satisfaction or achievement. There's something that in Naughty Dog's case for Uncharted, like they'll, um, very minuscule, they'll slow down the uh, the set piece itself yeah. to make sure you're keeping up with it. Um, but it's I like think... something like Tomb Raider, if they did, you know, collapsing platforms or whatever in those original games, you would have papped yourself mm-hmm. because you're already barely clinging on anyway. And often you perish. Yeah, well, yeah. You're going to climb back up for the, like, another half an hour to get back to where you were. Might explain why Naughty Dog introduced the wide linear levels in Uncharted mm-hmm. form, just to try and give it a little bit of a sense of openness. That sense of like peril and like the, the thrill chase of climbing up a, like an old ancient tomb and not knowing what's going to happen. Yeah, I think they've lost that in the series going forward. I'm really, so good. I'm really excited about this, Benji, because we've talked about this outside <laughs> of this podcast and I actually tried to go back to them at about 2012, 2013. I got them on the PlayStation 3 and oh, okay. I just thought, no, these have not <laughs> aged well at all. These controls are bad. But with a few years on me now and with everything you're saying, I want to go back and give them a go because I used to play the original trilogy, especially mm-hmm. over and over again. I used to have the same thrill of getting used to the level and figuring things out for myself or getting my dad to help me figure things out for myself and then executing on that idea yeah. in the satisfaction and that came from it. The other thing is, once once you're back in the swing, it feels very natural because if the control scheme was designed by a real person who playtested it. It, was, it wasn't just a random set of buttons that were just accepted. Mm-hmm. Like, it was designed to be like that. It is workable. I, I would I would still say, if you're going to go back to Tomb Raider, especially for you, like because the thing that pushed you away from it, I don't. I still would say there's a hefty dollop of finickiness, finickiness. Well, there is, but, but at the same time, yeah. w- w- the experience you're having is unlike any other game you're playing other mm-hmm. than within that I series. think it's justified, but I think like you can you can totally see why some people bounce off it, because it it's almost has tank controls and well like it does have tank controls. It does, yeah. And in terms of like rotating Lara on the spot and trying to take a minuscule step back so you can do the next jump or whatever. Um but that's kinda of, like like the tank controls in Resi, it's conducive to the overall yeah. atmosphere and tone and everything. So it kinda of works. What's your third game, John? No, oh, it's Angel of Darkness Tomb Raider. Oh, it's oh, not it's Tony no. Hawk's Pro Skater Three slash Pro Skater Four because Good. these games are just glorious i don't know what activision and um oh my god never soft were smoking back in the day but they managed to get the feel of the content the, the content the feel of skateboarding and combos back with those original pro skater games and even into underground to some extent but yep. they were never as tight as in three and four is my opinion mm-hmm. uh just the idea like the core gameplay of that will be ageless in my opinion like oh, yeah i think so figuring out a level figuring out the lines the best way through it 
nailing the tricks, linking everything together, just feels so satisfying. That was like, and it's great to learn, and it looks lush as well. Like yeah, it's yeah. got a skateboarding aesthetic. It's early two thousands, late nineties, and it works. I think I mean something like that. Like you compare it's like because you use your muscle memory. Like we all played yeah. those old games, and you do get so used to doing flips and grabs and everything. And then when five came out, they got it so wrong. Yeah, uh, with the feel of it, and same with the Pro Skater HD remake as well. And um, which I know they had to patch heavily to get the muscle, to get the physics of it similar to what it was initially. But with five, they made it so that the grind button is also a slam button. So you would just always you'd get used to pressing the button to grind and just miss the pipe all Yeah, and I think that's testament how well oiled those earlier games were because although they are deceptively simple like you are just pressing square to do a kickflip you're doing circle to uh, do a grab trick yeah. it, it, there's a, a perfection and a tightness to it that makes it just flow and feel and be so fluid and mm -hmm. so elegant there's, there's, also, so there's a secret degree of sophistication Yes, mm -hmm. to link in to link in the uh, the tricks. No, mm -hmm. I just say uh, we shouldn't really cast aspersions on Neversoft's extracurricular activities. <laughs> <laughs> I always wondered about Tony Hawk's Two. Right. I never had the chance to play the third one, but I I always thought that was a game that very much captured the zeitgeist of our generation. Yep. So I always wondered if that would necessarily appeal to someone of a different generation. Okay, yours. I think yeah. like the rose tinted glasses or whatever, or just you. You there's so much passion in those games. Like it's as soon as Rage Against the Machine starts that opening yeah. scene, like you're in for that ride. It is that time period, American Pie and Green Day and everything else. Like but as you still think it as you are proven, it isn't the aesthetics, it isn't the the stuff over top that makes it so. Great, it's the fundaments underpinning it. That's mm. it, and I think that's what I lost as the series wore on when we got into American Wasteland or even Tony Hawk's Underground 2 when it became so focused on the humour and the style and the culture of skateboarding as opposed to the actual skateboarding itself. And mm. even then, obviously, it was an exaggerated, simplistic version that, that, of it, like... but it... That dovetail into like Jackass territory. It was like yeah. I used to love yeah. Jackass, but it kind of well, put it was, me off. It was like, a crossover yeah. between the two as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there was. It just it, like you said, it didn't feel like there anywhere to go. Like, what was the last Tony Hawk's uh, game that you guys played? I think mine was Project Eight. Mine was two. Okay, I never number two, or it was also Project Eight. No, no, it's Tony Hawk's Pro Skater Two. Ooh, wow. you went on, a, you went on out on a high. That was a very, very. Yeah. I played. <laughs> my friend had Tony Hawk's Pro Skater Three, but I didn't have a PS two at the time so right, right. I never end up getting it did you play Thug Jim? I went right up to uh, <laughs> Proven Ground I, nice. I stopped when they started doing peripheral games right. uh, but even then like Project 8 and Proven, Proven Ground I didn't have the charm of the original but they were <laughs> they were decent 7 out of 10 games you know uh, they were fine they weren't complete abominations like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 5 terrible Thug was an affront to me because I can't say it properly Fog. 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 There was Fog in skateboard there. and it had Eric Sparrow in it, which is the greatest video game foil of all time. <laughs> you could also, uh, yeah, you could climb stuff. It was them mm -hmm. trying to be a little bit of a GTA. It was a cheeky thing. Um, but yeah, let us know what you think down in the comments below about certain old school games that have aged the best. For now, though, this has been the What Culture Gaming Podcast, and I've been your host, Scott Taylor, joined by Benjamin Richardson. Goodbye. And Josh Brown. Goodbye. I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.